and one and two and two and one and oh shucks I can't dance Welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro. And my name is Troy Whitmore. Today's stories are about the Toronto Open Data Master Plan, the Web Experience Toolkit, and GovJam. We begin today's episode talking about the City of Toronto's Open Data Master Plan. And there are so many places where we could start the story. And so many places where we could end it. Decisions, decisions. Okay, so back in late 2015, a bunch of Toronto Open Data practitioners were getting fed up that the City of Toronto's enthusiasm about open data was fading. So a gentleman named Mark Richardson, along with the help from Toronto Councillor Paul Ainsley, decided to round up the troops and put on a full court press and tell City Council that Toronto's open data program left much to be desired. This was unprecedented in Toronto. How do I know? Because I was there when Toronto City Clerk pretty much said that very thing at the February 2016 Government Management Committee meeting during our open data deputations. This is actually, Mr. Chair, the very first time this city has on any kind of committee agenda been able to address the issue of open data. So in that respect, it's a watershed moment. And I think this is precisely the kind of opportunity that we've been looking for to bring the issues and the concerns and the, the needs of the open data program to, to the forefront. And keep in mind, Toronto's open data program was first launched in 2009, and a conversation about open data had never happened at City Council until that day in 2016. Now, we have no idea if this is significant or not. But it's definitely worth mentioning. So there were a whole bunch of open data people, including Richard here, who waited all day to give three-minute presentations to the committee. And they did. And great motions were passed, and they felt good about themselves. But Mark had done this a few times before, and he knew he couldn't stop there. We had perhaps won the battle, but there was a long way to go still. So Mark and Councillor Ainsley kept hammering away and organizing this group. They put open data on meeting agendas, not just for government management, but also on the Executive Committee, Toronto Police Services Board, Parks and Rec. And to be honest, it felt as though we spent all of 2016 preparing and delivering deputations across Toronto. And we're happy to say that this relentless effort led to the City of Toronto announcing they would begin developing an open data master plan in 2017. Now, the analogy I often use to describe open government open data is to think of it kind of like when computers were being introduced in the workplace in the 70s and the 80s. Companies didn't just plop a computer, keyboard, and a monitor on a work desk and hope their employees could still do their job. They made drastic changes in HR policies, hiring practices, business operations, training. There had to be an investment in technology. Change agents were required. The whole leadership needed to be on board and believe that computers were going to make things better and more efficient. Especially when employees are whining and complaining that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And don't forget, in the 70s and 80s, there were lots of skeptics about computers. Here's a clip from the classic TV sitcom, Married with Children, where Marcy tries to convince Al that buying a computer is a good idea. (laughs) We don't need a computer. 
And I'll tell you what would happen if we got one. Just like when we had the kids, everybody oohs and ahs the first couple of days. <laughs> then after the novelty wears off, it just sits there, collects dust, and cries for food. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, nobody needs kids. No, I mean, I mean a computer. <laughs> Much like a family, what will a computer do for me? We could do all sorts of things, like keeping up with sports scores. Newspaper. Social events. TV guy. <laughs> Organizing recipes. Don't eat. <laughs> Doctor's appointments. Don't care. <laughs> and sadly, when open government and open data practitioners talk about open gov and open data, we're often met with these kinds of responses. A lot of, I don't get it and I don't need it type of talk. So when the city of Toronto hired Denis Carr as its new open data supervisor, the community rejoiced. He had been a vocal proponent of open gov and open data during his time at 311 Toronto. And much like how Marshall McLuhan once said, the medium is the message, Denis understood that creating the open data master plan that the community lobbied so passionately for could not be produced inside the bowels of the government using traditional approaches. So instead, he suggested to the city that the open data master plan be co-created with the community, that they too should have a stake in its success and that they too should have agency over the city's open data program. And that's exactly what happened. The Toronto Open Data Master Plan, in our opinion, has become a textbook example on how government and the community can work together to create a solid government policy document. Unfortunately, our time is running out here and we can't go into the details on how it happened. But rest assured, we'll definitely be revisiting the story soon. What we can quickly tell you, though, is that the City of Toronto Open Data team has made all their work on the Open Data Master Plan available as open source. All the workflows, the sprints, the documentation, the research, the surveys, and even the code for their new Open Data portal is open source. Which means the public can see the inner workings on how this government team works. And this is what open government looks like. Our second story today is about the Canadian federal government web experience toolkit. I remember first hearing about this initiative around 2011 or so and having no idea what it was about. I mean, web experience can mean anything, right? So after asking a few questions and getting to know the people behind the toolkit, I got to learn a few interesting things. Basically, this is a template created by Canada's Treasury Board Secretariat for website programmers that helps Canadian departments and agencies become web-accessible for Canadians with disabilities. That way, Canadians who need e-readers, for example, are able to easily navigate federal government websites. The Web Experience Toolkit was created after the government got sued in 2006 because a blind woman was not able to apply for Canadian government jobs online or do the census online. And in 2010, a judge handed down a ruling that said the government had to fix this problem. And that's the reason why the Web Experience Toolkit exists today. What's particularly significant is that the TBS opted to create an open source solution instead of buying something off the shelf or hiring a large company to create something proprietary. They wanted to build something in-house that would become the first TBS-led open source project which meant that they had to do a lot of trailblazing. For example, they wanted to use GitHub to host the code they were going to write. Now, for those of you who don't know, GitHub is kind of like Facebook, but for coding. 
It is a large community of like-minded people from around the world who collaborate to write code and create different versions of that code. And what GitHub does is allow people to not only work together to build code, but it also has features that control the different versions that the code exists. It even allows code to be used for other unrelated creations. For example, the Linux operating system code is on GitHub, and it is used as the kernel for the Android operating system. Kernel, as in kernel corn, is tech talk for foundation. And you can make just about anything open source, not just code. For example, Elon Musk has stated that Tesla will not initiate patent lawsuits against anyone who, in good faith, wants to use their technology. That means if you wanted to, you could look up the Tesla car patents and build your own Tesla. Getting back on track here. As you can imagine, in the knee-jerk acting way that government can be, GitHub and open source can present a giant security risk. Especially back in 2010, the TBS Canada Twitter account was created in 2011. So unsurprisingly, back then many government departments had blocked access to GitHub. Which is funny, because even though the decision had been made to build the toolkit in open source, the government wasn't ready or didn't know how to give public servants access to open source tools. It's kind of like the little kid at the pool. He or she is in their bathing suit. They've got their water wings on. They climb up on the diving board and slowly inch their way forward towards the edge. They know they want to jump, but goodness... Is it ever scary? And they finally jump, and everyone at the pool cheers them on. And this is true with the Web Experience Toolkit. It won a handful of awards and got a lot of play in the media. Fast Company, Mashable, Wired, they all published articles about the feat the Canadian TBS was able to accomplish. There are 5,100 commits for the Toolkit code. A commit is an individual change to the code. And 63 different people are responsible for those commits. And keep in mind... Not all these people are necessarily Canadian public servants. They could easily be from Sri Lanka or Ecuador because they see and understand the value of the Web Experience Toolkit. I was lucky enough to get to know some of the Canadian public servants who were developing the Web Experience Toolkit, and they were nothing short of being miracle workers. Not only did they have to navigate through a bunch of bureaucratic convention and red tape, but they had to teach and handhold a whole bunch of people through the process. People who didn't truly understand technology or technological trends. And it took a long time and divine patience before any kind of traction actually happened. In 2015, the ownership of the toolkit moved from TBS Canada to Service Canada. And we spoke briefly to Pierre Dubois and Francis Gorman, who are the new stewards for the toolkit. They told us the toolkit is not resting on its laurels. It has to keep up with the demand of its users as well as regulations. For example, they keep adding features Canadian public servants want, like different plugins. They're also upgrading its WCAG compliance. WCAG stands for Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which are published by the W3C. And the W3C stands for the World Wide Web Consortium. They're the ones who are responsible for developing web standards. But perhaps the biggest request is to allow the toolkit to be more customizable. And right now it is very hard due to the type of coding infrastructure that they use. For the techies listening, the toolkit currently uses a lot of jQuery and Bootstrap 3. Soon, 
the fifth rendition of the Web Experience Toolkit will be released and it will feature vanilla JavaScript and HTML5. So the government of Canada might have been a little scared of the big open source diving board. But they used the right gear, took careful steps, and eventually took the plunge. And they created something that is well-built, that anyone can use for free, that has a support network, and it set new standards for how government works. In 2010, they were that scared little kid on the diving board. Now, they're doing backflips. What we mean by that is that in 2018, the government of Canada issued a directive telling its departments to prioritize the use of open source software. And this is what open government looks like. Our last story today is about GovJam, the international event aimed to help change how government works. But it's not a giant conference in Geneva or anything along those lines. Think of it more like Earth Day, but for government. Every city or jurisdiction can hold their own version of the event around a global theme. In 2013, Melissa Tulio, who worked for the Ontario Centre for Innovation and Workplace Culture at the time, got wind of the GovJam event through a random connection between her boss, Karen Prokopek, and public servants visiting from Australia. After the visit, Melissa and one of her colleagues, Nisha Haji, dug into it a little more and on a whim asked Karen if they could do their own rendition of GovJam in Toronto. Karen said yes. As a matter of fact, Karen was all about innovation and something called human-centered design. The premise of human-centered design is to solve problems by taking a deep, contextual dive into the problem. A little like what behavioral economics has done for economics, human-centered design is doing for design. For example, I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine like 10 years ago about why so many department stores had these tiny little aisles and the kids and the baby sections in their stores. Those aisles don't leave enough space for parents and families to browse with their strollers or kids in tow. That is an example of where human-centered design would have caught that flaw before it was too late. Okay, continuing with our story. Melissa and Nisha were able to get a little bit of funding for food and supplies and other things, and for the most part, organizing the logistics weren't a problem. What was a problem was the public nature of the event. Since GovJam was about bringing together public servants, not-for-profits, academics, private sector, and regular old people in the same room, the event had to be promoted on social media channels. Not only that, but there were plans to live-tweet the event. At first glance, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? But don't forget, this event took place back in 2013, and even though it doesn't seem that long ago, government wasn't exactly too sure about social media. The convention in government is that elected officials are public-facing, and the bureaucracy should remain silent and in the background. But perhaps ironically, because government didn't expect public servants to tweet about their work, there didn't exist too many social media policies either. Very little red tape meant easy street for Melissa and Nisha, so all they did was downplay they'd be live tweeting. Also, to make things easier for themselves, Melissa and Nisha chose to participate in a similar event called Global Service Jam, just to get a taste of what they were in for. Following that, they got to work and used the tools, templates, and suggestions provided by the folks at GovJam to organize their own little piece of human-centered heaven for the province of Ontario. And they were all set. All they needed now were participants 
and judges. At first, Melissa and Nisha thought they might get 20 to 30 people and two to three judges. But instead, they ended up with about 60 participants and eight judges. Not only that, but judges were senior government executives across all three levels of government, not just Ontario. It's funny, because all of a sudden you have this tiny little idea that blows up. And the biggest concern on Melissa's and Nisha's mind was, they better not screw up. High-ranking people were paying attention now, and their little gambit could backfire. But we like to think that's a good thing. Under the watchful eye of their boss, Karen, Melissa and Nisha were trailblazing. And if you aren't feeling any pressure when you're trailblazing, you're probably doing it wrong. So the event took place. I was there. And it was a great experience. And we asked Melissa if there was any tangible impact from the event. She said it was mostly cultural, that a lot of new connections were made across the government, many of which continue to this day, and that a lot of people had the chance to be introduced to human-centered design. Unfortunately, events like GovJam only lead to an actual tangible product if there's some kind of funding model attached to them or if the idea themselves become sponsored by the leadership. But the event did open new perspectives for the government, new ways of doing things, new relationships, new dynamics between public servants and the public. And this is what open government looks like. This also concludes this episode of Stories from the Open Gov. Join us next week as we share with you even more stories about how open government and open data practitioners are changing the government you experience every day. In the meantime, leave us a rating or a comment about the episode or podcast and learn more about open government and open data by visiting our website at reopengov.org. Thank you for listening, and let's make it open. <laughs>